0: Pardase North America presents Greatest Hits, The High Holidays, a curated collection of premium high-holiday content from the Pardase archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to your Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For more high-holiday learning opportunities, visit Pardase.org.il forward slash events. And now, Greatest Hits, The High Holidays. There is no story as rich and complex, as troubling and inspiring as Akedat Yitzchak, the Binding of Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, which is the Torah reading for the second morning of Rosh Hashanah. One can look at the artwork that has been inspired over the centuries by the Akedah and be struck by the very different ways this biblical story is depicted, On the basis of artwork alone, one can appreciate how multivalent this story is. There is, of course, the famous painting by Isaac Caravaggio in which you see and empathize with the terror in young Isaac's eyes. You can almost hear the screams of Isaac as you look at his open mouth and the absolute look of determination on Abraham's face which drives home the drama of this moment. Or you can see the look of relief in Rembrandt's etching in which Abraham lovingly closes the eyes of his young son, Isaac, just as Abraham sees the angel in the moment before he drops the knife. Or then there's the modern Israeli artist Menashe Kaddishman's iron sculpture from the mid-1980s in which the ram and Isaac are linked and joined together at opposite ends with the ram on top and Isaac on the bottom with the possibility that the reverse is seemingly real and perhaps likely if artists reading the straightforward interpretation of the biblical narrative produced multiple interpretations through their art then Allah kama khama all the more so did generations of thoughtful readers and commentaries develop various ways of understanding the profundity of this story. Akedat Yitzchak is a great story precisely because there are so many ways of understanding this powerful story, which, like a dream, can be understood and interpreted on many different levels and in ways that are contradictory and not at all mutually exclusive. I remember being in a classroom with the Israeli poet Tet Carmi in 1991 and him sharing with us that he simply could not bring himself to read the story of the binding of Isaac to his young children, that this was a decidedly grown-up story and not appropriate for children, that it was simply too frightening. I want to highlight a variety of interpretations that while not exhaustive by any means, are among the richest lines of interpreting this story. The first is the one that is least cited in contemporary times, and yet is the most relevant to the themes of the Yamim no Raim, the Days of Awe, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. This is the notion that the binding of Isaac narrative is all about the resurrection of the dead, and being given a chance to live our lives over again. This particular interpretation is probably the reason that the Torah reading was selected for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. The idea is that our lives are in the balance. Rosh Hashanah is the day in which we are all very much like Isaac. In his classic work called The Last Trial, Shalom Spiegel analyzes the various Midrashim in which Isaac is linked to the notion of resurrection. One Midrash links each of the patriarchs with one of the first three blessings of the Amidah, the Shmona Esrei, the central prayer of each service. The first blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem Magen Avraham, Blessed Are You, Shield of Abraham, of course relates to Abraham. The third blessing of the Amidah, Baruch Hashem Hashem HaEl HaKadosh, is related to Jacob. It is the second blessing according to the Midrash. Baruch HaTah Hashem Mechaye HaMeitim, blessed are you God who resurrects the dead. It's this blessing that's connected to Isaac. Shalom Spiegel shows that this connection between Isaac and the blessing of the resurrection of the dead spans a wide range of Midrashim from those within what he calls the natural bounds of scripture to those that have much more radical interpretations. An example of a Midrash that links Isaac to the notion of the resurrection of the dead that is within, quote unquote, the natural bounds of scripture is found in Sefer HaEshkol, where Avraham places Yitzhak up on the altar and then hears the voice of the angel calling him, "Do not lay your hand upon the lad." Don't do anything to him. The midrash says that Isaac, at that moment, stands up and give thanks immediately and recites the blessing, ata Hashem hametim." Blessed are You who revives the dead. Here, Isaac is connected to the blessing of resurrection because he was almost killed, almost offered as a sacrifice. But there are more extreme, more fanciful, more frightening interpretations, interpretations that emerge from an expansive imagination that embellish the details of the text. Some of these Midrashim, such as in Midrash Lekach Tov, suggest that Isaac was so gripped by fear, as he lay down on top of the altar, that his soul flew out of him, and the Holy One of Blessing restored to him his life by means of the dew drops for the resurrection of the dead. Here the Midrash is playing with the notion that the quality of fear that is attributed to Isaac later in Genesis first made its appearance here and was so great that he died on Moriah and God revived him. Here one thinks of Caravaggio's painting I referenced earlier. Whereas in the first type of Midrash, Isaac's connection to resurrection is made because he was almost killed. Here the Midrash advances our imagination one step forward and suggests that Isaac passed out or died due to the fear of the moment. But when we get to a short Midrash called Shibole Leket, we see an additional and somewhat shocking element that wasn't a part of these Isaac resurrection midrashim referenced earlier. Here is the midrash. When Yitzchak Avinu, our father Isaac, was bound to the altar and reduced to ashes, and his sacrificial dust was cast onto Mount Moriah, the Holy One, blessed be he, immediately brought upon him dew and revived him. That is why David, David, Allah Shalom said in Psalm 133, like the dew of the Hermon that comes down from the mountains of Zion. For he is referring to the dew with which the Holy One blessed be he revived Isaac our father. Thereupon the ministering angels began to recite Baruchata Hashem Mechaye HaMetim. Blessed are you, God, who revives the dead. So here, Shalom Spiegel notes that the prayer Baruch Mechaye HaMeitim moves from being Isaac's own prayer in those other Midrashim to being the prayer of the angels themselves. The blessing takes on an additional significance and importance here because the words were composed by the angels. Listen to the imaginative radical addition of the phrase when Isaac was bound on the altar and w- was reduced to ashes and his sacrificial dust was cast on Mount Moriah? Well, it doesn't mention the slaying of the father, the slaying that Abraham does. It presumes it. Shalom Spiegel deals with the tension here given the fact that Abraham is specifically told not to touch the lad. Al tishlach yadcha. And yet this Midrash is playing with the idea of what if Isaac had actually been sacrificed? The Midrash goes where the untamed imagination goes. It follows our greatest fears, our uncensored fears and fantasies. Shalom Spiegel writes, perhaps the scholars responsible for this wording deliberately omitted from the story of Isaac's death every trace of the knife's movement, and every suggestion of a hand on the lad. It is as though they strove to uproot any possible notion which might lead readers to suspect that Abraham had rebelled against his God's commandment or had in any way deviated from what is laid down in the Torah. Indeed, the reverse. When Abraham heard the words, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, He at once pulled his hand away from his son Isaac. And if something happened after all, the fault was not his. Of course, I'm thinking of Freud and the idea that there are no negatives in psychoanalysis. Spiegel makes the case for the fact that by the time the Midrash comes around that says that the second blessing of the Amidah is connected to Isaac, there is already a rich, Midrashic tradition that understands that Isaac was slain or burnt on the altar and then rose from the dead. And later Midrashim draw upon that rich history in linking it with Isaac. Rosh Hashanah is, as we said earlier, all about resurrection. It's all about having an opportunity to live our lives over again and to be granted a second lease on life. It's a day that urges us to address the question of, if we had our lives to live all over again, how would we live? And it invites us to live that way, beginning today, Hayom. It is a day of contemplating our death and rebirth, and had the central theme of death and resurrection not have been taken and made so central to the Christian church, this probably would have been the predominant reading for the Akeda and why it was chosen for Rosh Hashanah. A second group of interpretations of the Akeda is to read the binding of Isaac as a story that asserts the continued life, not just of Isaac, but of the entire Jewish people. The Akedah can be read in light of the religious competition that existed between Judaism, early Christianity, and then later Islam. The rabbis are particularly responsive to Christian claims that the church is the new Israel, Israel of the spirit, whereas the Jews are only Israel of the flesh, carnal Israel. And as Islam enters the scene in the 7th century, it too incorporates the prophets of the Tanakh and makes a claim against the continued covenant with the Jewish people. So when we examine the Agadah through a Midrasha collection called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, a collection of rabbinic Midrashim with interpolations from the 8th century, one can see this notion of threat and competition play out. The Torah text tells us that Abraham took two servants along with him and Isaac. And the Midrash here identifies these two unnamed servants as Ishmael, the son who was cast away along with his mother Hagar in the previous chapter, and Eliezer, Abraham's trusted servant. Ishmael is, of course, the father of the Arab world. And in the Midrash I'm about to read, he stands as a symbol of Islam. Eliezer, a member of Abraham's household, but not genetically connected to Abraham, serves as a wonderful representative and symbol of Christianity. Here is what Pirkei Darabi Eliezer says. Isaac was 37 years old when he went from Mount Moriah, and Ishmael was 50 years old. And contention arose between Eliezer and Ishmael. Ishmael said to Eliezer, Now that Abraham will offer Isaac his son for a burnt offering kindled upon the altar, and I am his firstborn son, I will inherit the possessions of Abraham. Eliezer responded to him saying, He has already driven you out like a woman divorced from her husband, and he sent you away to the wilderness. But I am his servant serving him day and night, and I shall be the heir of Abraham. And the Holy Spirit answered them both, saying to them, neither this one nor that one shall inherit. The Midrash goes on. On the third day when they reached Sophim, when they reached Sophim they saw the glory of the Shekhinah resting upon the mountain. As it is said, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. What is it that Abraham saw? The Midrash says he saw a pillar of fire standing from the earth to the heavens. Abraham understood that the lad had been expected for the burnt offering, and he said, Ishmael and Eliezer, do you see anything up on one of those mountains? They each said to him, no. And so the Midrash says he considered them to be like donkeys, and he said to them, since you don't see anything, shvu lachem po im you stay here with the donkey, because you are similar to the donkey. Now here is a very strong polemic against Christianity and Islam, saying we are the true inheritors of Judaism, and saying it in terms that we would never use today. What is being argued here is that the Akedah underscored the unique relationship between the Jewish people and God and that it resulted in a promise of life for the Jewish people. If the previous interpretation of the Akedah was about the possibility of rebirth and renewal in the individual, this strain of midrashim is arguing that Judaism and the Jewish people are eternal, that our covenant is eternal that we are not finished and our work is not finished. A third interpretation of the Akedah is the notion of self-sacrifice and duty. It is here we get very close to what I believe is the shot of the story, that bringing yourself or bringing what is most precious to you represents the greatest devotion to God. Sacrifice itself, of course, is all about bringing what is most precious and returning it to its ultimate owner, who is God. In addition, in the case of animal sacrifice, the animal is a substitution for ourselves. The animal dies in our stead so that we can live. Its blood serves as a substitute for our blood. This is hard for us as moderns or postmoderns. And I want to quote Rabbi Alan Hankin, whose commentary appears in the machzor Mishkan HaNefesh. He writes, Abraham epitomizes the human capacity for self-transcendence, for knowing that it is not his deeds and wants that are preeminent, but God's. Hasidic thought calls this Misirat Nefesh, the surrendering of oneself. Misirat Nefesh has to do with a willingness to give up the things that you hold dear to bring about something better. It encompasses the ordinary self-sacrifice that parents practice for the sake of their children, as well as the extraordinary courage that Israeli soldiers demonstrate for the sake of their comrades. Many of us want our Judaism comfortable and familiar. The notion that Judaism might make demands on us might call us to misirat nefesh, is off-putting. In fact, much in Judaism is opposed to our lifestyle and culture. The Akedah reminds us that the Torah of Abraham disputes the Torah of complacency, ease, and self-satisfaction. This, writes Rabbi Henkin, this then is the power of the Akedah, and for me the reason for its association with Rosh Hashanah, Just as Rosh Hashanah summons us to engage in cheshbon ha-nefesh, self-examination, the Akedah summons us to engage in misirat nefesh, to relinquish cherished parts of ourselves in order to serve God. There is another reading of the Akedah which understands the story to be one about the miraculous nature of continuity. Isaac's birth is miraculous at Abraham and Sarah's advanced age. And then in response to this divine command, they almost lose him. His life is saved and continuity is preserved through divine intervention announced by angels. This story then serves to underscore the way in which the creator of another generation, the creation of another generation, is in itself miraculous. And the continuity of a tradition transmitted through those generations is a response to the miraculous. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, the story of Abraham and Sarah and their longing for a child promises the delay, the hope, the despair of the torments and trials could have no other effect than to create at the very beginning of Jewish time, a focus bordering on an obsession with Jewish children. No people have cared more for their children, invested more energy in them, and shaped the whole of their religious life in order to hand on to them what they find precious. Abraham and Sarah had a child because they so nearly did not have a child. Other cultures take children for granted. Judaism has never taken its children for granted because Jews have known what it is like to be an Abraham and Sarah. Rabbi Sachs continues, so often we were in danger of losing our children through persecution or assimilation that they became our driving concern. Do not lose your children through carelessness, neglect, ambivalence, false values, dominance, indifference, too much intrusion or too little, mixed messages or a desire to integrate into values, not your own. That was God's message to Abraham and Sarah's descendants. It is his message to us. We have lost too many Jewish children. What meaning will our lives or the lives of our ancestors have if they are not lent immortality by our continuity? If we would only remember the many miracles it took to bring us to this hour— We would willingly do our duty to ensure that the next generation stays Jewish and the generation after that. And finally, I want to bring the most classic reading and most often cited reading of scholars on the notion of the Akedah, which is that this is a story that drives home the notion that Judaism rejects child sacrifice. Now, it's a bit hard to make this argument given the fact that the narrative says that God tested Abraham. And he asked him to do this. This reading of the narrative argues that you have to get to the end of the story to understand the moral of the story. This interpretive stance might seem decidedly modern, but Rashi already suggests this in his medieval commentary. He sees the command to Abraham in chapter 22, verse 2, right at the beginning of the story, Ha'alehu. And he reads it like this and raise him up he did not say slaughter him because the holy one of blessing would not rejoice in his slaughter rather to bring him up the mountain to make him an offering and when he brought him up he would take him he would say to him take him down so it's a very literal reading of the uh, alehu which Either means to offer him as an olah, to slaughter him, but he says, no, 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 read this literally as bring him up and then bring him down. Rashi, not that different from modern scholars who live a thousand years after him, Rashi wants to give us the takeaway at the very beginning of the story. Of course, child sacrifice was common among the nations surrounding Israel. And some of these surrounding practices were uh, committed by the Israelites themselves. In Yermiyahu, Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, we read, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Of course, here in Jerusalem, the valley of uh, Ben hinom Becomes synonymous with hell, Gehenna, because it was the site where children were offered to Molech. In Mika, Micah chapter 6, verse 7, the prophet rhetorically asks, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the assumption here of the writer. Is that the answer is a definitive no, of course not. The sacrificing of children is what the king of Moab does to persuade the gods to allow him to be victorious over Israel. We read in second Kings chapter three, verse 26, seeing that the battle was going against him, the king of Moab led an attempt of 700 swordsmen to break away through to the king of Edom, but they failed. So he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as a king, and offered him up on the wall as a burnt offering. A great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and went back to their own land. In the context of the ancient Near East, then, the argument goes, this story was the most effective way of saying that the God of Israel does not demand the sacrifice of children and that the ram offered in Isaac's stead is the most important theological statement that can be made. Sacrificing our children can take other less literal forms, which this same interpretation can also warn against. I'm thinking here of Chaim Guri's poem, Yerusha, inheritance, which reminds us that there's a price to pay for the substitution that comes and saves the day at the end, that it too is not without consequence. This translation is by my teacher Tet Karmi, who I referenced earlier. Yerusha, heritage. The ram came last of all, and Abraham did not know that it came to answer the boy's question first of his strength when his day was on the wane. The old man raised his head, seeing that it was no dream and that the angel stood there, the knife slipped from his hand. The boy, released from his bonds, saw his father's back. Isaac, as the story goes, was not sacrificed. He lived for many years, saw what pleasure had to offer, until his eyesight dimmed. But he bequeathed that hour to his offspring. They are born with a knife in their hearts. The liturgy of Rosh Hashanah connects the binding of Isaac to one of the three special sections of the Musaf Amidah. The Musaf Amidah is a nine-blessing Amidah with three special themes in the middle: Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. And the Akedah is connected to the Zichronot section, the section on remembrance. We say specifically in the Tefillah, the terra l'fanecha Akedah she'akad Avraham avinu et Yitzchak beno al gabe hamizbeach <Hebrew> v'chavash rachamav la asot ritzoncha shalem ken yich rachamecha et kaascha. And may you recall the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. When Abraham, our ancestor, bound Isaac his son upon the altar, when he conquered his compassion to fulfill your will with a full heart. Similarly, may your compassion conquer your anger against us. And I want to conclude by looking at this link between the Akedah and the notion of memory. Zikaron, Zikronot, as marked on Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance, the day of memory, Rosh Hashanah. How do we understand these various interpretations of the Akedah that we've outlined in the context of what we are supposed to remember? How do these various interpretations inspire us vis-a-vis the memory that we call to mind and that we want God to call to mind on Rosh Hashanah? First, we want to remember that every day is an opportunity to say Baruch Hashem HaMetim, blessed are you God who revives the dead. We want to be reminded that every moment and every day, but especially at this time of year, we have the opportunity to live our lives differently, to make amends, to start over and begin again. Next, we want to remember that ours is an enduring faith in civilization and tradition and that the notion that we have not been replaced, that we continue to have a mission in this world, a vision that is unique of what we want the world to be, this leads us to the responsibility to ensure that our Judaism is not simply a set of empty folkways, but has a relevant message for our time. The notion of the Akedah as self-sacrifice calls upon us to think about what we are willing to devote ourselves wholeheartedly to. What are we willing to contribute to at some cost to ourselves? What are we willing to give up? What commitments eclipse our own personal autonomy, which we hold so sacred, when we are willing to put ourselves and our desires second? What values are so central that we feel a sense of duty and must? The notion of continuity as a miracle reminds those of us who are parents or grandparents and all of us who teach or influence younger generations to be aware of the gift that has been given to us. It is a reminder that the link between generations points us toward everything that is eternal in our world. The link between parents and children is part of a chain from the beginning of humanity to the end of time itself. To understand that notion of continuity as nothing but miraculous also urges us to ask ourselves about Jewish continuity. How are we ensuring that the next generation of Jews will have a fluency and the building blocks that will enable them to have rich and meaningful Jewish lives? Finally, the interpretation of the Akedah that is rooted in the rejection of child sacrifice reminds us that children are not our property. They are not the property of their parents. They're not the property of the schools. They are entrusted to us, but they belong to God. I'm also thinking of all the ways in which our environmental irresponsibility is a kind of child sacrifice. For our comfort, we are ruining the world that our children will inherit. The section of the Zichro note concludes, Ki zocher kol hanishgachot ata hu me'olam, ve'en shichacha lifnei chisei chavodecha, ve'akedat yitzchak l'zaro hayom barachamim tiskur. Baruch HaTahashem Zocher Habrit. For it has always been you who remembered all forgotten things, and there is no forgetfulness before the throne of your glory. And today, in your compassion, you remember the binding of Isaac for his descendants' sake. Blessed are you, eternal one, who remembers the covenant. May this be a good and sweet new year for you. For the people of Israel, wherever they dwell, and for the world. From the Beit Midrash in Jerusalem at Pardes, Shana Tova Tikatevu Vetechatemu. Thank you for listening to Pardes North America's greatest hits, the High Holidays. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Visit pardes.org.il for more ways to learn with us. Thanks for listening.